Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Coast to Coasties podcast. I have a little story to tell for this episode before we get rolling into it. A few months back, one of my uh, supervisors on Coast Guard Cutter Oak, my bosun, told the district admiral that I was running the Coast to Coasties podcast, and he called me up and recognized me in front of the uh, units down in Newport, Rhode Island, and he made a funny joke, and he said, you know, I don't think you've ever interviewed a Master Chief on your podcast, (laughs) and I said, no, I most certainly have not, and he volunteered his command Master Chief that was right next to him. And Master Chief Ingham said, well, you know, I've never done a podcast either. So I knew instantly there that I wanted to have the opportunity to interview Master Chief Ingham. He's had a very, very long career in the Coast Guard and has so many stories to tell. So I'm very happy today to be joined with Master Chief Ingham. So hello, Master Chief. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you doing today? Doing well, doing well. Well, a lot of the viewers here, we like to start with just filming with who you are, how you came to join the Coast Guard, and just a general overview of what your position is currently in the Coast Guard. So could you fill us in a little bit with what your current roles are and how you came to join the Coast Guard? Sure. So my name is Mike Ingham. I'm uh, currently serving as the District 1 uh, Command Master Chief, like, uh, like Hunter said, and uh, I've been in the service for just over 24 years. First time being assigned to the 1st District and uh, how I came to join the Coast Guard was uh, my dad was a retired command master chief in the Navy and told me to uh, avoid the Navy and that if he had to do it over again, he joined the Coast Guard. I ended up joining the Coast Guard. My brother followed uh, shortly behind me, also enlisting in the Coast Guard and a uh, proud graduate, Tango 153 in uh, October of 1998. So you're Tango 153, I guess. I graduated Tango 200. So. I, remember, I remember hearing that from uh, one of your earlier podcasts. So I knew we were both uh, Tango shipmates. Four, 47 companies difference <laughs> spanning 24 years in the Coast Guard is incredible, to say the least. So can you tell me where you joined from, where you came out of the recruitment office? Sure. My, uh, my dad was assigned to uh, Camp Smith, headquarters of the Pacific Fleet out in uh, Honolulu, Hawaii. So uh, I graduated from Wanalua High School and, uh, and joined the Coast Guard from there. And then you joined out of Hawaii, got sent to boot camp. And did. where did you end up graduating boot camp and having your first station as a non-ray out of? Oh, that's a, that's a topic of conversation around this podcast because I am one of those that went from boot camp to A school. So they had boot to A school even back in the 1990s. They did in very small and rare cases. And IT A school, which is the modernized version of what you went to. It is. Uh, what was it called back then? I went to Telephone Technician A School in Petaluma, California. So Telephone Technician A School, is that any different than the current IT curriculum that you know of? Or Oh, yeah. So uh, as a prior rating force master chief, I got very familiar with the current curriculum for the ITA school. You know, a lot of our systems back when they were, uh, when it was Telephone Technician A School, it's just been modernized, much like the IT rating absorbed a lot of the server maintenance, configuration, building, workstations, user accounts, all of that, that that wasn't traditionally part of the telephone technician rating back when I joined has been incorporated into uh, ITA school. Well, I was going to say my grandmother, she used to work on old Windows 95 and XP's 
back in the 1990s. And this is all prior to the dot-com bubble incident happening. So you were in a very golden age nascent of the technology where it was just starting to get that really boom train going on. Yeah, so you know, many people know uh, the, current, the current computer network as Workstation 3. Back when I went to A school, it was you know, fairly early on in the transition. So I actually learned how to network Workstation 2 together. Most of the people that were doing the computer network support, user accounts, and all of that were actually telecommunications specialists, today's OS rating. So many of those people had gone to like some sort of computer administration classes, and many of those people, as Workstation 3 started rolling out, those are the ones that got the Windows-based training. And those are also those folks that joined the telephone technicians to become information systems technician when that rating stood up. When did that rating officially become created? Uh, probably in 2002, 2003. That was the time of the joint rating review when you know telecommunications specialists and radar men became operations specialists, quartermasters became bosun mates, fire control technicians became electronics technicians, and telephone technicians and those other you know ratings that had some computer-based training or computer maintenance training, you know whatever you want to call it. Those people joined the, the telephone technicians and we all became ITs. Well, I think what's so neat about you starting out before the IT rate was even created and seeing yourself all the way through it is just because I remember growing up all throughout this time, of course, I was very young, but we had at most a dial-up computer at home. And the military has always been viewed at, at least to the outside eye, as having the modernized access to the technology you know, sometimes I still see them using very old software systems now in some cases. Back when I was growing up, though, and we had the transition from dial-up to faster internet and all these mobile devices coming out, how are those transitions in your career in the Coast Guard impacted as you were in IT integrating all this technology to the rest of the Coast Guard? Um, let's see. So, I mean, I remember back in the day when, you know, we also had dial-up service at home for our, you know, personal use at, uh, at, you know, wherever we were living at the time. And then when we stood duty early on, we had a duty pager. So when it was our turn to stand duty, the duty tech passed the pager to the next guy. We also had a, a, a calling card. So if we got a page from a station that we supported with a, a, you know, some sort of failure, some sort of casualty that we had to respond to, they would page us. We could. If we were on the road. You pull over. Use a payphone and your and your calling card, your government calling card, to make a, a long distance call to the station that that paged us and to find out what exactly happened, what needs to uh, what needs to happen, and we go from there, all the way up until the time where we had cell phones and being able to to do all of that. And then as we've recently transitioned uh, through the pandemic, we've obviously seen. Uh, remote work um, mm -hmm. and telework uh, increase as uh, Captain Dash, the previous uh, C5I service center commanding officer, likes to put it. We were going from a two-lane country road to a, a, a full-blown four-lane highway in terms of the backbone of the network that we're using to support all of our uh, Coast Guard operations wherever they're occurring, whether it's at home or elsewhere. Well, I don't want to jump too far ahead yeah, we'll get into the uh, retention discussion later into the episode. 
But do you feel that having this increased teleworking and working from home abilities serves to help members that have busy family lives and schedules as well? Overall picture? Yeah, oh, oh, most definitely. So I, I think you've, you've probably seen the recent message traffic regarding remote work and telework coming out of Coast Guard headquarters. So obviously you can't remote telework from, you know, a buoy deck like you do on the Cutter Oak. But um, I think it most definitely helps with maintaining a, a work-life balance, being able to handle some of those situations that are occurring at home, while also affording people the, the opportunity to re- have reliable systems that can connect them to the network so they are able to, to do that work from home. I've had conversations with Admiral Mauger, the first district commander, recently, and, and he wants to be able to, to have the talent that's available, the best talent available, whether they're living here in Boston or if they're living in Keokuk, Iowa, you know, he wants to make sure that we have an opportunity to bring on, retain, and keep the best talent possible working for the Coast Guard. Well, that's what I was curious with the increase in teleworking, if there's even a thought of maybe opening more centers. Like, I know they have the Yeoman Center in Topeka, Kansas. Just having more centers maybe in the middle of the country to contract some previous pools that might have not had access to working for the Coast Guard just based on geographic location. I don't know if um, you know we see any kind of new centers opening up, but there's certainly uh, an opportunity for that type of thought anyway, I think. Well, I digress. We'll get back into <laughs> talking about the retention sure. later in the episode. So you went to telephone technician to ITA school. Right. And after ITA school, it became the more modernized thing. You were mm-hmm. probably an IT3 or an IT2 at this point. I was a TT2 when the when the rating converted to IT. Yep. And so you transitioned to IT2 mm-hmm. and then kept working your way up the ranks to IT1, ITC. Where did you start noticing your job becoming more administrative versus, I guess you call it groundworking in the field? So we, uh, you know, those of us uh, in the IT and ET ratings and, and others, what we do is, is considered touch labor. So many of the techs that you've, you've seen or, or witnessed out in the fleet doing either supporting tickets that you've put in or the ETs are out there doing preventive maintenance. Obviously, that's called touch labor. A lot of the remote work that we want to do is handled by the centralized service desk in St. Louis. If it can be done remotely, we encourage, you know, we want to see those those techs that are out there doing that work and, and really relying on the folks at the ESDs to do that touch labor. Where did I see my, uh, my job becoming more administrative? Probably at the first class to chief level, depending on the jobs that I had at the time. That's probably when I saw myself doing a little bit more more admin work. As a first class, I was assigned to the Cutter Mohawk and then later on at ESD New Orleans. I reported in New Orleans just before Hurricane Katrina. So I was definitely involved in, in uh, hurricane response and, and getting our units back up and running, but also later on as the shop supervisor, getting our uh, more junior techs on the road, making sure that they had what they needed to get their job done. Right, because when a big event like that happens, it was all hands. All hands on so deck, yep. We brought in people from around the Coast Guard to, to come in and help because mm-hmm. there was so much, uh, so much devastation and, and loss, even for many of our Coast Guard units that were uh, damaged or destroyed. I remember seeing those images on the news. It was quite profound and vast how much destruction there was in that hurricane. Absolutely. 
Okay, so getting into talking about your change to the administrative side of stuff as an IT1, ITC, mm-hmm. do you feel like that's something that happens in a lot of rates? That first to chief level is where your job starts becoming more administrative regardless of the rate you pick, or does it happen varying in different I stages? Think you're, for... probably, you're probably onto something there. I think many first-class billets are often in leadership positions and in various you know shops whether my wife as a as a master chief yeoman she could probably tell you something similar that uh as a first class or as a chief and that the position that she was in was more of a leadership role mentoring training making sure that the junior techs know what they're doing how to do it managing schedules and all that kind of stuff so yeah i think that's uh that's pretty common in most ratings okay so at the chief level how many years were you into your career when you became chief IT. I made chief pretty quickly for uh, for an IT and I made it in about 10 years. Yeah, 10 years and you became an ITC. Yep. And then from there on, you were more and more in administrative levels as you moved from there or was yeah, I think it, very... I think it depended on the job. As a chief, I got assigned to the Armed Forces Inaugural Committee. So that was uh, what turned into uh, President Obama's first term, but it was the military side of the celebration of the transition of power. I did a lot of tech work, I would say, in that job. It was a temporary one-year assignment, and uh, I was working with the joint forces, joint services. I think that job was more technical than anything else. It didn't have any other Coast Guardsmen working with me on that assignment, directly anyway. Most of the folks that was working with me that were kind of under my responsibility, for the most part, were Army and Air Force. Then following that assignment, I went over to the Telecommunications and Information Systems Command, also known as TISCOM back in the day, the C5I Service Center, as it is today in Alexandria, Virginia, where I became more uh, somewhat technical, but more administrative, where I was doing a lot of procurement for network equipment throughout the Coast Guard, coming up with technical documentation, kind of doing some higher level support for technicians in the field. And do you feel that... Well, I guess I'll phrase this in a different way. How did you come to get these special assigned billets and opportunities lined up for? Is this just what typical chiefs and senior chiefs have for billets? Are these special roles and assignments? Or did you seek these out specifically because you wanted a larger role as you progressed in your career? Yeah, so one of the things that you know that mentors of mine have said is to seek out these increased levels of responsibility. So where I was at an ESD, I was focused on touch labor support early in my career or the Coast Guard Cutter Mohawk, where I was focused on my cutter, just supporting those units or that one unit that was uh, that was under my responsibility. But later on, when I went to TISCOM or whatever, you know, I just kind of elevated the level of responsibility or the area of impact of, of my service. So at TISCOM, I was working with ESDs across the Coast Guard, working with the cutters around the Coast Guard to provide them with the network equipment, keep their operations going, get broken equipment replaced, and that sort of thing. Well, you also said you became the Raid Enforce Master Chief, which for those in the Coast Guard, we very well know Raid Enforce Master Chiefs, maybe non-Raids don't know, but everyone in their Raids know their Raid Enforce Master Chief or know of them pretty well and their responsibilities. But can you describe what that job was like for you holding on to that position as the rate enforced master chief, the responsibility you felt in that position to look after your entire rate, essentially? Sure. So the rating force master chief, I've always described it as kind of like a headquarters representative lobbyist type of position where I was stationed in Miami for the second time as a senior chief 
I was above the cut, I advanced Master Chief. The IT rating is fairly small, with only six rated Master Chief billets. At the time, I was one of the uh, the few qualified or eligible people to be assigned at, you know, to that position. I got selected, so like I said, lobbyist and, and representative for the rating at Coast Guard headquarters. So definitely, it was a, a really cool experience. I got to work with my really good friend, Paul Greenwood. He used to be the ET Rating Force Master Chief, so ETs and ITs were obviously brothers from another mother. He and I traveled the service, got to visit with ETs and ITs all over the place. And then we also lobbied and just tried to support the rating as best as we could through uh, changes to the A-School curriculum, changes to our rating performance qualifications, changes to staffing levels, whatever it is that the rating needed, we were there to support. So so you would hear basically when you were traveling to all these different units that had ITs and ETs, their concerns that they have for the future of the rating and bring those up higher above you as the bridge? Absolutely. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> well, I had a question about that as well because a lot of times we only see the messages posted out on the board from the plans that the Raid Enforced Master Chiefs have. So obviously I'm not going to ITA school, I'm going to MSTA school. But when I look up the MST, Raid Enforced Master Chiefs list, there's a set schedule of completed tasks and what they have projected that they want to accomplish. So they wanted to add for my rate a RAP program. Mm -hmm. So they'll essentially go to their unit before A school, get some training on the job, and then go to A school. Is that what a lot of units would like to see and transition towards that side in the future or just Tor by the nature of the job? Is towards it the RAP program you're talking about? More so like aviation is currently and how MST wants to go. Sure. I think some of the ratings, I guess it all depends because, you know, in the IT rating, we don't traditionally work with a whole lot of non-rates. So we don't have a whole lot of time invested into somebody like that. Like like the Cutter Oak may have some BOSA mates. You know, if you can get the BOSA mate uh, or a, a seaman boarding team member qualified or the ME rating can get somebody or the an, a, a seaman pursuing ME could get boarding team qualified they could potentially just shorten their duration of A school. They don't need to go through all that training while at resident training. The unit has a, a large investment in that member with the time that they've invested in getting that member qualified. So if they can send them to uh, A school and then get them right back, you know, after a short period and getting some additional training, that's, uh, that's just the benefit for the rating. So I think it works well for some ratings. I personally don't know that what I could teach a seaman ahead of A school going to IT school what I could teach them ahead of time that would shorten the duration I just don't I don't know that how that would work for us but um, I'm glad to see that that things are happening where other ratings are being able to uh, to shorten that amount of time spent at A school that just makes it you know so they can get more students through A school shorter A school list shorter wait for seamen trying to get to those schools and just in turn let's just make more petty officers right I've also, I noticed that sometimes, did you ever have to make a tough call with the IT list as being popular? Someone told me one time that it was a four-year-plus wait to get to ITA school. Obviously, now it's under a year. But at a certain point, is it your job as the rate enforcement master chief to decide when the list needs to close temporarily? Or? Many of the rate enforcement master chiefs do consult with various stakeholders, whether it's uh, Forcecom or other headquarter program elements that have a say in that stuff. They get together and they find out what exactly needs to happen 
and there's a lot of other variables that go into mm-hmm. it when when making a determination on on closing a list. But that's definitely something that the rating force mass chiefs do work with. But never was a situation that I had to personally deal with while I served as a rating force mass chief. Do you feel that when it happens though that it's to the benefit of the service? Is that why they do it, uh, or to the benefit of the member? not waiting that long to advance in your own career personally. I guess it, I guess it, um, I guess it sets, you know, some expectations that if you were going to be waiting for four years, I mean, that's the duration of an, a person's entire first enlistment. If Mm -hmm. they, as so long as they enlisted for the traditional four years, but you could be that, I mean, that would mean that you're on the A school list for your entire, that's right. You 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 just remain a seaman the entire time. So that may also be a a way for someone to maybe reevaluate. Is it really worth it to get on this list? If I'm going to wait that long, Maybe they can make a plan B or or decide what they're going to do with their career at that point. Well, thank you for answering that. Uh, that was just a question that I had on my Instagram from a number of people. So sure, yeah, like I said, I think there's a lot them. of different variables that are going in, into consideration there. And, and we're definitely, obviously, critically in stress, as you've talked about on other episodes. So we, we definitely need to do what we can to, to get people into those ratings as well. Right, because if everyone chooses to go the same five rates, and there's a whole bunch with no personnel to successfully complete the mission as we all work together to complete. Absolutely. All right, so moving on past your time as the Raiden Force Master Chief, how did you end up on your profile? It says you went to the Cyber Command Unit, and cyber is a relatively new field that people talk about, and I know a lot of my friends in IT school would like to hear more about this too because they don't know too much about what cyber is or what it's going to become because the new rate the new talk of the rates coming out. Sure. So, so leaving the rating force mass chief job, I applied for the command senior enlisted leader program run out of the mass chief petty officer, of the coast guards office. I applied for that. I screened successfully and eventually mass chief Vander Hayden came to me and said, Hey Mike, I, uh, I think I need you in cyber. I had a conversation with him about that. I told him I would talk to my wife. You know, I had orders somewhere else at the time and she wasn't too excited about that opportunity. We were already at Coast Guard headquarters. I was serving as obviously as the RFMC. She was down at uh, the Personnel Service Center, the uh, Reserve Program Management Office, and life was easy for us at, at headquarters. And this was immediately before the pandemic. We've got a lot of friends there at headquarters, and, and she's got her whole Triple H crew there, as well as the CDC, where my daughter was going to the daycare. So. To make this long story short, she was more than happy to stay at headquarters. I told Mashi Vander Hayden that I was uh, more than willing to accept opportunity to serve at Coast Guard Cyber Command. I think it was absolutely the right decision for me going forward. What is cyber? In what is cyber? <laughs> Holy moly! I don't know if I'm uh, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that question at, the, at this time. You know, there's there's a you know. If, if people do have specific questions about what cyber is and what, what, what they're getting into, I've got a whole boatload of contacts back there that, that are more than happy to, to help answer any specific questions. And I would encourage anybody to look up some of the folks back there, reach out. I can certainly help point folks in the right direction. There's just so many people that really enjoy being a part of the cyber workforce there at Coast Guard Cyber there in, in Alexandria at Coast Guard headquarters or co-located at Coast Guard headquarters and um, and out at St. Louis. New team going out to Alameda, some reserve folks and others, detached duty to uh, U.S. Cyber Command at Fort Meade, 
some folks over at CISA. I mean, we got folks all over the place doing big things for the Coast Guard, and, and they absolutely love the work that they're doing. They're protecting um, the, the Coast Guard's networks. They're always, you know, we got teams always on watch, standing guard, making sure that any kind of nefarious activity, you know, targeting our networks or targeting the networks of our partners, targeting networks of industry and the ports around the world. We got teams that are deploying in response or assessment of some of the partners because so much of uh, the nation's economy is dependent on our ports, that the cyber protection teams are really getting out there. We've got people doing all kinds of really, really cool, big things that they just love doing. And, and I'd be more than happy to put people in contact with those that have more questions. Well, I think that's really good clarification because we always joked about in my ship for all the guys going IT is they view them as white hat hackers. Sure. And the good guy hacker is trying to improve our networks. But it's so much more than that because ship imports around the United States are becoming more and more automated. LA Long Beach is a fully automated shipping terminal and so if hackers were to get into that network and shut that down so much commerce would be lost in even just a short period of time that having assets to protect those networks is what you're saying is cyber's one of cyber's primary missions oh yeah for sure so i mean even during that pandemic and and during other things where we saw some uh, supply chain issues and ships backed up off the port waiting to come in to offload if you could imagine some of these ports like you said that are automated everything is automated Mm -hmm. with the exception of the truck driver everything the cranes are automated they have gps trackers on the on the uh the containers all the truck drivers have to do is be in the right place at the right time to have that box put on the back of their truck and they're off and so if something was to happen where, uh, where you know, one of these bad actors took control of the ports or shut it down, or it would really just put us in a world of hurt for a long time. And then one last question about cyber. Does it involve a lot of coding experience, or is that a misconception of the cyber aspect? Because a lot of people think, well, I'm not good with coding. I don't read code that well. Do you have to be good at coding to be good at cyber? I think there's definitely some some folks that are are good at that, and I think there's wherever your skill set is that you're either good at, interested in, or want to get into. There's probably a spot for those that are interested in going to cyber, and and they'll find that niche where you can be most effective. We've definitely got some um, forensic analysis going on, maybe that they're talking about reading code and and seeing what's there to make sure that there's nothing out of the ordinary or that nothing that shouldn't be there. So there's definitely, you know, those types of folks getting after it. But I don't know that anybody's really doing any coding to write software or, um, you know, super dependent on that type of skill. Right. Okay, so you served in cyber during the duration of the beginning of the COVID pandemic. I did. Most recently afterwards, you now became the command master chief for District 1, which is your current position right now. Yes, it is. Could you walk through some of the things you do on a week-to-week basis for us? I know you travel around a lot. I do. Representing us. I do. I I travel with Admiral Mauger. Like I said, he's the, uh, the first district commander. I had to go through an interview process to get this position. So I interviewed with three different admirals. Admiral Mauger, you know, sent me a text shortly thereafter and, and congratulated me on, on becoming the the, uh, the first district command master chief. So I'm more than thrilled to serve with him and get to travel with him extensively. We travel around, like you said, to 
all the different units. There's a chart on my wall behind me that has every single unit in the Coast Guard's first district listed. I think we're short a small handful of units that we haven't been to, but a lot of times we get out there, we do all hands events. We talk about Coast Guard events and policies, changes coming. We talk to the crews about challenges they're facing, material condition of their stations, boats, everything that they have going on in their lives. And we try to help put them in touch with resources that they need, stuff they didn't know they needed, know they have. Yeah, just try to share with them that we're out here looking out for their best interests, as well as the sectors and their sector commanders and command mass chiefs as well. Well, I've noticed that too, and I don't want to say this in a negative context of the disconnect between sometimes the non-rate of the third class is working on their individual unit Mm -hmm. just doesn't see all the big pieces that are actually forming and the logic going into and forming around that you guys do so it's really nice to have you guys to be able to project to us this is why this is all happening going on and to relay our concerns to even bigger coast guard sure so that, that that visit that we had down to newport when we first met you I don't know if it's I don't know how long you've been out of out of basic training when you when you met Admiral Mauger or if, if you met Admiral Allen before him but I couldn't tell you the first time I met an admiral in my Coast Guard career but uh, I don't think it was as a seaman or a third class so I think people enjoy being able to see and talk and meet an admiral or get a coin from him if he calls up some high flying high good you know really top notch performers during our unit visits, gives them a coin. It's got a two-star flag on the back of it, really, really saying that they did uh, a really good job to uh, to earn that. I did meet Admiral Allen briefly. I think I was in the mess cook galley, though. We, he was, he came for the change of command, and I was washing dishes, so I got to wash his dishes. That's <laughs> 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 about the extent I met him. But it is just nice to be able to put face because there are a lot of concerns that the individual brings up on a day-to-day that they often wonder, well, what's being done about this? Or is something being done about this? And you're the reassurance that, well, we are working on this and this is what's happening. Yeah, a lot of what we we talk about is uh, the Commandant's 100-day action plan. So, so many of these these initiatives that Admiral Fagan and Mass Chief Jones had when they came into the offices of the Commandant and the Mass Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard, that many of those, well, that hundred, first of all, that hundred days is over, and so many of these different messages have been released recently, talking about the workforce and and uh, and how the focus of her tenure and Mashie Jones's tenure is going to be on the workforce. So many of our new cutters have been funded. They're laying steel down in Florida and Louisiana on many of these projects and aircraft and. 47 slep and all this stuff is is well underway in the works so let's get after the people piece really trying to make it easier for people to join people to stay train work and play here in the coast guard so i think that's what they're really getting after with these uh some of these initiatives well with all these new cutters they're building too is it more to update outdated assets or is it more to expand existing number of assets for an expanded mission mindset to have to go over yeah so as you know you know we just commissioned the uh, the first fast response cutter here in the first district last week over at base boston obviously those cutters are designed to replace the 110s the 110 foot patrol boats that have long 
outlasted their life expectancy and life expectancy of service. The OPCs will eventually replace, once those come online, those will replace the 210-foot patrol boats and uh, the Oof. 270s. So many of these, uh, these, these assets are very dated and uh, in need of, of replacement. So I think the, uh, just like the NSCs replaced the 378s, I think we're in the same, same position with the FRCs, OPCs, NSCs, the PSCs, the Polar Security Cutters, Inland Waterway Cutter, you know, Commerce Cutters. Uh, are going to replace the inland fleet of uh, construction tenders and yeah so well i i have heard that uh, a lot of the 210s do break down quite frequently sometimes just because they are they've been old engines and i know some of my chiefs on board my ship were non-rates on 210s and they were old then they said uh, many of those uh many of them have been uh have been decommissioned or sold to other foreign countries but they are definitely uh an aging platform that that, uh, that we needed to recap. So for people deciding as to whether they want to make the Coast Guard a career or just a short-term tenure, the ones leaning towards making it a career, what advice would you give those people who they're, they want to set themselves up for the best route possible for 20 years plus in the Coast Guard? They really like the service, they like the missions, and they really like doing the job they're doing. Oh, the advice I have for them. You know, so I continue to serve because there's honestly nothing that I'd rather be doing than uh, than continuing to serve. And I'm still having a lot of fun doing it. So that's why I continue to serve as an IT. I've been handed business cards. I was at a dinner the other night with the team. And one of the gentlemen I was sitting next to worked for General Dynamics and uh, asked me, you know, how much longer you got left in the Coast Guard? Give me a call when you're... Uh, when you're thinking about retiring. Offers like that, friends of mine that have retired that have, have been very successful on the outside have really tried to encourage me to, to consider it, but I'm still having too much fun here in the service to give it up just yet. What type of uh, advice for those that are continuing to serve? I you know, I stress that uh, you know take every opportunity to advance. I did advance quickly throughout my career. It was always studying hard and getting those performance qualifications signed off and just continuing to learn and, and seek, you know, additional levels of responsibility. As a chief, I was really focused and involved in the chief's mess and uh, and giving back that way through our chief's call to initiation processes, seeking responsibility as a command master chief once I got this far. So um, I don't know if that's that great of advice, but that's how I did it. And it worked for me. Well, I think it's a good message just to keep working hard and you know, we take service-wide to advance at different levels. I know not every position has service-wide. BM3 to BM2, you just got to become a coxswain, but that's also a very hard board to pass. So there is an element of study at each level that you progress towards that I feel that if, you know, everyone knew their resources, that's another big thing is that there's the Coast Guard portal is so layered, like an onion almost, sure. <laughs> that... Maybe the resources are there and people would like to access those, but sometimes if you don't know how to navigate the portal, it's nice to have a mentor at your unit to help you, guide you through the portal if you don't know how to use it. Absolutely. So one thing that's out there, my Coast Guard, either going to the website, downloading the app on your phone, just trying to keep up with the current news, because reading an article on my Coast Guard is a whole lot easier than trying to dig out all the details throughout through a official message traffic. So... I'd encourage people to do that as well. 
even if you don't have a mentor at, at your unit, you can seek one out through the uh, the mentoring program. So, mm-hmm. um, the, or the mentoring project. If you uh, like yourself, don't have a whole lot of MSTs working on the Coast Guard Cutter Oak, but if you wanted to seek out a mentor that was a MST and just try to learn what you can from them before you get off to A school or even after you graduate from A school, you could continue to uh, be mentored by somebody in the the MST community or the OCS community or you know anything like that. There's so many different resources out there for people to learn different things that you don't have to kind of be on this journey alone in the Coast Guard, that there's people out there. We all join the Coast Guard because we want to help. All we got to do is ask to be helped by someone else who's kind of been through the, uh, been in the service a little bit longer than you and maybe has some, some additional information that they can share with you along the way. Well, I'd say that's one of the coolest things I heard when I did a TDY to sector northern New England last January, and I was surrounded by MSTs. And they were all helping each other study for the service-wide, and their logic behind that was, if they get the promotion and I don't, I've still made the rate better and boosted the rate, which was very cool to hear because I know a lot of times in a lot of organizations, people are competitive to try to get those fewer and fewer billets as you move up. And there's always that competitiveness to those highly selective zones. But to see the camaraderie and working together to progress the rate as a whole, it's really nice to see. Sure. And, you know, maybe it's, uh, you know, competitive, the competitive nature of those guys will drive them to compete more, you know, more and more amongst themselves. And then, I don't know, maybe when you see the uh, the service-wide list, you'll see Sector Northern, you know, at the, uh, at the top of the list, a whole big cluster of them, and they'll all be above the cut for advancement together. So that would be a, a pretty cool thing. And if competition drove it between themselves to out, uh, out-hustle, other uh, other sectors or other uh, groups of MSTs, then more power to them, I suppose. It does, especially those law books. It just makes it easier to understand. <laughs> working yeah, I with think each other, uh, so. you know many hands make light work. So uh, if you're working together as a team to to get that study material put together, then uh, and you're all doing it collectively and, and sharing the workload, makes it a whole lot easier and much more fun. Pivoting now to the person that join the Coast Guard, doesn't know if they want to stay in, but, you know, they want to see out their first four years, see if they want to make it a career, but keep their options open on the outside, too. Mm -hmm. What advice would you like to give those people? You know, so one of those things that that recently came out was... um was an additional $4,500 in, in um, uh, certifications and, and qualifications competencies that uh, that's available to members. And that's in addition to tuition assistance that I'm sure many people are, are already using to, you know, to, to work towards a college degree. But you can go on to uh, Coast Guard Cool as credentialing opportunities online and Previously, they only offered reimbursement and money for the test, but now that $4,500, you can put that towards uh, training. So if there's a certification out there that has like some sort of boot camp training course um, that costs money, you can take that course, be reimbursed for it, take the test, and now you've got an industry-recognized credential that you can use to boost your resume. So I would encourage people, to, you know, if you're going to come in and and uh, use the service as a stepping stone for your future aspirations outside of the Coast Guard, you might as well just take advantage of all the training and education opportunities you can while you're in the service to uh, mm-hmm. to set yourself up even better 
than you would just by saying I was a member of the Coast Guard. Well, kind of getting back to what we were talking about earlier too, being someone who went to college before joining the Coast Guard, I talked to a lot of my friends because my school was not cheap. It was kind of an expensive school to go to. Sure. And they viewed joining the Coast Guard and listing in the Coast Guard as something unfeasible for them because the non-rate pay wasn't enough to make up for the student loan payments they'd have to make each month. So a couple months ago, I think this is just before you got here too, uh, Master Chief Daniels, I wrote him a letter with a little bit of a write-up. And it talked about what if it was possible in the future to have that 4,500 tuition assistance used as a payback program every year rather than wait in the 10 years for the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Act that they have in current place. Is that, do you know, in talks at all or if anything like that would be in the future? I don't know that the tuition assistance, $4,500, has been used, you know, talked about like student debt relief or anything like that but i have heard that there are they're in their works i think it's going through like a legislative change proposal process to uh to try to identify a way to maybe incentivize new recruits to come into the service and uh you and i don't know what the monetary you know value is or amount is but uh using that as an incentive a recruiting incentive to draw people into the service to get you know to pay off some of their student loans and to offset some of that, you know, that won't, uh, because if we do right now start as an E2 or an E3 uh, out of basic training, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes the pay isn't isn't there. That'll, it'll put you in the financial hurt locker if you're having to pay significant amounts of student loans. Right, that's right. Uh, when we worked with the IME this summer, this is a Danish ship, uh, I guess the university system is different over in Denmark than it is in America, but... They said in order to join the Danish military, you had to have four years of trade. I don't think it was necessarily college, but it was trade experience before you even joined the military. So they kind of had a strict high standard. So I think they had to allow it their way that these educated personnel could come in and go through that. Sure. I mean, that's a, that's a, maybe this isn't the same thing, but it's similar and thought that if you, uh, if you did have a trade that was in critical need, mm-hmm. say you were a, uh, you know, some sort of, if you had a culinary degree and, and were a chef, or if you were an electrician, maybe a master electrician, you know, something along those lines where you've got some advanced levels of skills that we need in, in critical ratings like uh, CS and EM, that maybe instead of coming in and going straight, you know, from boot camp, going, you know, as a seaman or, you know, a fireman and working your way up as a, uh, a third class, you know, working your way up towards chief senior chief and master chief that if you did have a critical skill that you might be able to come in bypass a school you could come in as an e4 e5 um, something along those lines that would have your resume and your skills evaluated by uh, recruiting command and the rating force master chiefs and and some others that would be able to make a determination on the pay grade at which you could enter the service and uh just totally changing the way that uh, you know we're uh, looking at possibly recruiting members in the Coast Guard. That's an absolute great idea, I think, too. And I know that recruitment is such a heavy issue. Like you said, Commandant's 100-day plan outlined this. is mm-hmm. all about the members. The members are the focus of her plan currently mm-hmm. right now. So I was just curious if you knew any ideas about 
what they're talking about to maybe increase that recruitment process. I know on the recruiter podcast, they said they're going to communities that maybe not had as much exposure to the Coast Guard like the community I grew up in, where we're far away from the ocean. So there might be pools of people in those communities that would join the Coast Guard if they heard about it. Sure. So, I mean, I was at the uh, Recruit Training Board of Advisors, another one of my travels down to, uh, to Cape May, New Jersey, uh, last week. Uh, Captain Tipton is the uh, CEO of, of uh, Coast Guard Recruiting Command, and he let us know about several recruiters that are basically working out of their homes in these smaller you know, areas that don't have, that have recruiting offices. So they're really trying to you know, focus on getting more recruiters spread to some of those communities that may not have a recruiting office, getting the Coast Guard's brand out there, getting into those schools that may have not have, have seen a Coast Guard recruiter or, or maybe even any of the other recruiters for that matter, but really trying to focus on, uh, on really you know, getting after some of the recruiting issues. Uh, the MCPOG's office has, has uh, challenged the Chief's messes throughout the Coast Guard to uh, to engage in those local communities as well, get into get into those schools, host events at the units, open up the units. So if mm-hmm. if, uh, if recruiters have potential applicants, they can you know swing by you know the Coast Guard Cutter Oak, they could swing by Sector Southeast New England, you know Air Station Cape Cod, come by the district building if you really want to, but it's not going to be very exciting. But uh, you know we're all happy to. Uh, to, to show folks around, get them a feel for what they're going to be doing if they decide to join the service because what we do here in the Coast Guard is completely different and the mission is completely unique from what the other services do. And we're all trying to recruit the same pool of people, but the Coast Guard is something special compared to those others in my opinion. Well, another thing a lot of people are considering, and I'm sure this has been a topic of discussion in the higher-ups, Chiefs Masses recently too, is back when the Master Chief Daniels came down and spoke with us a couple months before you took office. He asked the members in the entire room, what are your main concerns right now as the individual living in this area? And I think about 75% of the questions were directed towards housing issues. And it's one of those things that to me, it seems, you know, the Coast Guard can't control the housing market (laughs) the way it's going, but it's an ebb and flow like everything else is. And it seems like when the ebb is up, that's when the most concerns will be raised about it, like right now. So I guess people's primary concerns were their BAH for where they're living, but what is being addressed in the Coast Guard-wise about the housing issues that a lot of the members have for not just where they're living now, but also when they have to move to a new area and have to deal with competitive markets because Coast Guard's in a lot of competitive markets. Yeah, so, you know, obviously the Coast Guard doesn't have a whole lot of Coast Guard-owned housing throughout the entire mm-hmm. service. And over the course of time, the Coast Guard is actually divested of a lot of these properties just because of the cost of maintaining it just outweighed and the benefit of, of keeping it. Just because some of it was so old that it, that we just didn't have the money to, right. to keep it up. When you're in areas like Newport and uh, and Washington D.C., we obviously depend on the Air Force and the Army and the Navy to uh, to provide housing. In, in a lot of cases, Coast Guard housing offices are being encouraged to seek out opportunities for Coast Guard leased properties where the Coast Guard can actually lease them and uh, and then just place members and their families into those properties without having to compete annually or you know every time somebody. Uh, uh, PCS is out of here. 
if members are currently living in rentals that they were able to get on their own, maybe they can talk to their landlords and say, hey, we've got another Coast Guard family that would love to move in here. And uh, hopefully they've got built a good reputation for being a quality tenant of the homeowner's property and they can continue to, uh, to rent towards a, a Coast Guard member. We do have in some very remote areas, especially in Northern Maine here in the first district, we are building some new Coast Guard property for housing. From the ground up, you're building new houses in Eastport area. <laughs> Eastport and Jonesport are both wow. getting some brand new housing. So that's uh, that's some pretty exciting news up that way. For From what I hear, it's, it's beautiful housing with amazing views. And because I haven't been up there to see it personally yet, Eastport, Jonesport, you know, we're coming to see you sometime soon. But um, it's supposed to be some of the nicest housing in northern Maine. So that's uh, that's pretty exciting. And then the MCPOG and Commandant, if you watch the rollout of the Coast Guard strategy, and when I was with MCPOG last week, he mentioned that at the change of home port ceremony, when uh, Tahoma and Campbell relocated officially to Newport, the mayor of Newport got up on stage and she was extremely proud to say it. You know, one of the initiatives they they've done in Newport is to reduce the amount of time that member or that homeowners can actually list their properties as an Airbnb or seasonal rental, which made housing a lot more available and affordable for service members, both Navy and Coast Guard, in that community. When uh, some of our senior leaders, whether it be the district commanders, the sector commanders, command mass chiefs, whoever engaging with these communities, that might be an opportunity to reduce the amount of time Airbnb, especially here in New England, where the summertime is obviously the peak tourist season up here. Very seasonal communities along the coast where uh, the rich and famous come in vacation along the coasts of uh, New England. So make it really challenging when we PCS at the very same time during peak transfer. Right right in the summer. You know it. So hopefully there's, uh, you know, things that that our local housing offices are doing and and working with communities to to try to make it easier to serve and operate in these coastal communities that depend on us. I remember when I used to rent in college, coastal community in a peninsula, each cost us twelve hundred a month for the school year. As soon as the students left for the summertime, it'd go up to two thousand a week. And you think about the summertime is right when we're moving to our new locations. Oftentimes, that beginning of July area, and that's what makes it difficult. So I'm glad to hear that those adjustments are being made. So, I guess to piggyback off of that, do you think that BAH is going to become more or less common? As more Coast Guard buildings get built and more leases are sought after, do you think BAH will just be less and less of a factor going forward in the future? I don't think we'll ever get to a point where we have enough housing for all of our members. So I think it'll still be on a voluntary basis to go into housing for most of our members throughout the service. There may be you know, instances where it's beneficial for the member to accept government housing or leased housing. A lot of times, you know, people love their a lot love their pets. So, mm-hmm. you know, my brother was uh, was a member who had a large dog, and it was a challenge for him to find places that would that would rent to him with a large dog. So, either he had to buy a place, or you know, just jump through hoops to ensure that he could find a place that that would rent to him. 
a lot of times military housing doesn't have those restrictions. You may have to pay a pet fee or they're going to hold you to any kind of repairs that need to be done if their dog does cause some sort of damage to the property or something like that. But oftentimes, you know, military housing is also bigger than what you might be able to afford off base. So you get a nice big studio. Yeah, exactly. So I come from Washington, D.C., where a lot of my friends, they lived on on Fort Belvoir or, you know, um, Joint Base Anacostia Bowling because either the the proximity to work or the uh, or it was just a much bigger property than what they could find outside. So. Well, so that's who I want to get into for the next part is in these busy communities, you lived in Washington, D.C. Now you're working in Boston. And you've mentioned that you take the commuter rail into the city because it's easier. Mm-hmm. And I know right now that's not accessible for a lot of cities. Some cities do have that as an accessible point. But mm-hmm. for people that want to live outside the metropolis area and commute in like you do for Boston... Mm-hmm. Do you see that becoming more and more common in the next 10 years for a lot of where the Coast Guard bases are? Obviously not the small boat station three hours in the river like Burlington. But. Right, right. So, you know, you know, obviously we do have a lot of remote stations that are that are deep into these peninsulas like you're talking about up in up in Maine um, that would really make public transportation really challenging. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of our major urban areas, you know, there are public transportation options. Your vehicle is parked in my parking spot downstairs uh, right now. And you you saw that there's only a, a handful of parking spots available. So many of the people that do work here in the district building, they do use public transportation to get here to the district building each and every day. Like you said, I do take the commuter rail. My wife, like I mentioned, uh, I mentioned to you earlier, uh, is a Mashiv Yeoman assigned to a base Cape Cod. So the stupid dad joke that I like to tell people is that if you know the geography between Boston and Cape Cod, it's quite the distance. So we needed to find a place in, in the middle. So I found that in Middleborough, because everything's a borough here in, in, uh, in Massachusetts. We found <laughs> the middle one. So I'm only a couple, of, uh, a couple of miles from the train station, conveniently enough. And uh, I only have to drive a few miles in the morning, get on the commuter rail. It's completely free since, uh, I don't know, Vietnam or... I, I think that's the story I heard anyway. It's been free for, for military to ride ride the commuter train. So I think it's also free to ride the T here in the city. So as long as you can find you know an attendant to let you through the turnstile, you can get on the trains for free. In Washington, D.C., I know you uh, in one of your previous episodes, you talked about you know mass transit benefits, and that was definitely a thing in, in the D.C. area. You just have to work with the, the transit benefits coordinator at your unit. They hook you up with uh, the Metro card and... Uh, they re, it, it's a it's an automated process. You reload your card every month, and uh, you can ride Metro for free to and from work. So that's a, a pretty cool benefit for those uh, those some of those major metropolitan areas that do have uh, reliable uh, mass transit options. Well, I do love hearing about that because I I feel that a lot of people would like to take advantage of those, and it'll just make their lives a lot easier if they don't have to drive through the hectic cities sure every single day to come serve the mission yeah so you know i mean i there is a parking spot down there for me but it is a nightmare often because of the hours that i work to get in and out of the city each and every day the first 10 or 12 miles on the way in and out of the city is just bumper to bumper gridlock for no apparent reason 
um, like so many other places. So I just choose to get on the commuter train. I have uh, you know a work device that I can get on, check my emails, and, and really just entertain myself by working on my way to and from work. Listen to podcast episodes. That's where I do listen to a number of your podcasts, <laughs> for sure. Uh, okay, so to wrap things up, I'd also like to ask just more personal questions. Is Where would you recommend going to be stationed to have a good time and you know, so enjoy that's, yourself? That is, that is a really good question because, you know, early on in my career, I wanted to go to the, the, the bigger cities because, you know, I'm, I'm more of a city guy than in the country. But uh, as Master Chief Greenwood and I, like when we were RFMCs together, we traveled to a lot of the smaller ESDs throughout the Coast Guard. We came up, we did a road trip, a two-week road trip, where we traveled to each of the ESDs throughout District 1. We went to, uh, we went to Buffalo, Milwaukee, Grand Haven, Cleveland. We went to Port Angeles and, I don't know, we went down to New Orleans. We went, I mean, we went all over the place got to visit a lot of these ESDs and a lot of these smaller places, including Detroit, both of us were like, Detroit sounds bad based on what you hear on the news, but you don't have to live in those bad sections of town. But it turned out that the base was in a really cool spot. People really enjoyed being there. And no matter where we went, people were making the best of of the situation. If there's a unit out there that that strikes your fancy, that's on on your shopping list, I'd encourage you to go after it, even if it turns out that you know you don't like it. It's always about the people that you serve with, and uh, I think you're going to have a, a really good time no matter where you get stationed. I even heard if, a lot of District Nines on your list. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean they were they were yeah, one of the units that uh, that that uh, that invited us to a number of conferences. So those were places that I avoided, and when we got to Milwaukee and Grand Haven and and all these different places that are throughout you know throughout that area. We uh, really missed out on an opportunity, I think, by putting those by avoiding putting those places on my uh, on my dream sheet. But I got to go visit, and uh, you know, I think um, there's so many unique uh, small boat stations that are that are in the D9 area that are mm-hmm. that are lining the Great Lakes. Um, they really provide quite a quite a unique opportunity for people to serve. Most of my time has been spent in D7 and D8, um, except you know. That the the time that I've spent in the national capital region, so uh, really getting out of the south was a chore for me to do. But I'm really excited to be up here in in D1 and and uh, got to have a, a shameless plug that you know I think uh, D1 is probably one of the better places to serve right now. I'm sure I'll uh, you know hear from that from some of my friends. But D1 is is beautiful. The D1 mafia exists for a very reason. strong. <laughs> it is it is it is very strong. Here in in, uh, in New England and uh, and the, and the D one Mafia, they there are some folks up here that just absolutely love serving in the first district. So well, now I'm I'm seeing why. I was curious about that too, is because I've only lived in New England except for a brief stint in Georgia, and I was really young. So I'll say I've lived in New England my life, and everyone up here that I'm like stationed with, except for save the few people, is from either New Jersey or closer. <laughs> the New England cortex. Right. No one's from out west or down south. They're all from New England. Is that a similar thing you'll see per region? So a lot of people in D7 are from the area down there? Or is that unique to D1 in New England? I don't know that it's entirely unique to, to D1 in New England, but um, it's definitely, it's pretty prominent 
down in the uh, the Hampton Roads area, down in like the Portsmouth, Norfolk area, there's like their own version of the D1 Mafia. There's so many units just concentrated in that area. You can you can bounce around base Portsmouth, the Main Street Towers. Um, you can go out to Trace in Yorktown. I mean, you can really work that area to your benefit to really homestead if that's your if that's your idea of fun. But you know, there's there's definitely opportunities throughout the Coast Guard to homestead in, in certain areas and, and people just seem to love D1 and the <laughs> and because we, we also have a, a, a nice concentration of, of units mm-hmm. in the area and uh, opportunities for people to, to really lay down some roots. And I'm excited to jump on and go out to see some other places around the country. So it's nice to be able to pick your brain on that. Yeah. D9's definitely towards the top of the list. Uh, 13, Alaska. <laughs> 17. I got to, so. like, I mean, on those travels I was talking about, my, my good friend Paul Greenwood, uh, he and I, you know, we traveled up to Alaska. We didn't get to see all of the, you know, everywhere we wanted to go, but he and I traveled to uh, to Juneau and Ketchikan, two amazing places that um, that the people, they just want to uh, not share their little secret on, with everybody because if if everybody knew about how great it was up there they'd all want to go and that was somewhere that i was not putting on my on my dream sheet when i was a young petty officer so i should publish this episode after i pick my dream sheet or <laughs> yeah you don't want to i'll help i'll help you build it out in places i know and and uh and uh but i i, I don't know i I'd, I'd have a hard time finding places that are that are uh that are not very popular mm-hmm. that uh that if you go somewhere i'm sure there are people there that absolutely love being there no matter where they're at i saw there was snow on the ground and a moose standing by the coast guard sign already out in alaska i don't know what station it was at but i think it was anchorage maybe but it reminded me so much of home back up in the middle of may that yeah it was a really cool treasure to see well i just bought my epic pass uh, a couple days ago so i'm i'm already looking forward to uh, ski season up this way sunday river <laughs> wherever we got to go. Good mountains. Well, thank you very much, Master Chief, for coming on and sharing your insights on today's episode. We really appreciate having you as a uh, source in our district and being so close to us. And it was really helpful to hear your insight as to things that we might think about on a daily basis, but don't necessarily have the dots to all connect with the way the chain works. But, you know, the chain, every link has to be strong in the chain. So, that's right. Don't be the weakest link. That's right. And so... It's really nice to be able to transpire and go so far up the chain to be able to sit down with you today and speak with you. And I hope you'll share this with a lot of your friends and Absolutely. higher ups. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, we'll, uh, we'll do what we can. I, you know, I, I do enjoy listening to the podcast. And, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, anybody who's thinking about joining the service or, you know, like you said, uh, you know, choose a, you know, a, a career field to get into uh, with a rating of their choice, we'll, uh, we'll listen and, and hopefully learn a little bit about each of the ratings as you make your way through them. That'd be a good foundation to start and then just expand off of those benefits in the military. So there you go. See how it goes. Uh, my shameless plugs for the end. Anyone else who would like to be like Master Chief Enum and come on the show is more than welcome to contact me. Uh, Coast to Coast is on Instagram. Uh, for Coast Guard members, you can contact me at uh, my uscg.mil account and uh, we'll set up an episode if we can make it work. I, I like to travel too, so I'll travel to you. <laughs> Thank you very much for tuning into this amazing episode. 
and we really hope to hear you tune in for it and on all future ones and i look forward to having some of you listeners as guests in the future Uh, have a great day